Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Mark? This book, the Gospel of Mark, was written in the first century, and it is tied to the historical figure Mark the Evangelist. Papias of Heropolis, who was born around 60 A.D., ties the writing of this text to the historical figure Mark, and there's other ancient sources as well. So we, we have on, on good word that this first century text is tied to the historical figure Mark. Mark was a companion of the historical figure Peter, uh, who's a part of the eyewitness community of Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but when I want to get to know someone, I, I, I find it really helpful to ask those who know the person, uh, you know, tell me about this person. So as you open up to the Gospel of Mark, you have a source that is connected to the people who know Jesus so that we can hear of Jesus and learn of him from a reliable historical source. That said, this uh, figure in history, Mark, according to Coptic tradition, was actually born in Cyrene, which is a city in North Africa. He also died in Egypt, so Mark, uh, in this sense, we could say, is both Jewish and also African. Uh, on that note, I, I think it's uh, uh, by way of cultural observation here as we're getting into things and thinking about the context of the book, uh, Mark as an African, uh, a Jewish African figure, really dismantles the contemporary skeptics who like to say things like, Christianity is a white man's religion. Christianity came from Europe, and uh, it's a white man's religion, and white people used it to do all this horrible stuff and whatever. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Christianity, actually, its, its fathers are African and Middle Eastern and Asian. Um, Mark, Mark writes from this context. Uh, that said, uh, Christianity wasn't limited to the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. It, it was intended to spread into Europe and beyond. And so we see the gospel in China, we see the gospel in Europe, we see the gospel around the world. And this figure, Mark, though Jewish, though African, is very much interested in the ends of the earth. After all, Jesus commanded his disciples to go to the ends of the earth. And so while Christianity is indigenous to Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, it, it is also a global faith. It is a global faith. And because it is a global faith, we, we see books like this, like Mark, he's writing and he's not, he's, he hasn't limited himself just to an African or Jewish context. He's actually writing this text for a Roman audience. He's writing this for a very broad audience and he wants that audience to know that what happened in Jerusalem is for everyone. The one who came, the one who was born of a woman, the, the Son of God who comes in flesh is not just for, for us, but it's for everyone. And so the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus to the people of Rome, to the ends of the earth, and, and therefore in its teachings we, we find things that, that are broad and global, but also things that are timeless. There are lessons in the Gospel of Mark that aren't trapped in the first century because the Gospel of Mark is dealing with things with regard to the human condition that are timeless. They're perpetual. They're, it's addressing problems that people have had ever since people came into existence. And so it starts getting at these heart issues. And today we're going to see the Gospel of Mark getting at the heart issue of brattiness. That said, the title of my message today is Battling Bratty Behavior. Now, I need to be clear up front in saying that this is not a message about brats out there in the culture, but it, it is, well, it's not merely brats out there, but it is also aimed at the reality of brattiness that rages in all of our fallen human hearts. 
And so then as we explore today's topic um, about bratty behavior, we must recognize in humility that being a brat is the default screen of all humans. It's the, it's the screen when you open up your phone. It's the picture that's staring at you. So as we get into today's topic, I want to say more about fallen humanity and the origins of our brattiness. But first, let's just begin with some definitional matters, some cultural observations, and then we'll be jumping into the Gospel of Mark. So definitionally, we probably all know what a brat is, but it is worth defining up front. A, a brat has a soft form and a harder form. In its soft form, a brat is someone who consistently thinks of themselves before others and what they want over those around them. In its harder forms or more stubborn forms, a brat is someone who thinks that they are superior to others around them. Uh, people who walk around like they are privileged and somehow uh, uh, you know, feel like they are free from responsibility and any sort of consequences for their actions. They're above it, you see. This typically happens to people with parents uh, and or educators who fail to teach kids virtuous uh, behaviors and discipline. People often become brats because they're spoiled. Their parents fail to enforce consistent and age-appropriate limits, and an enforcement of those limits then leads into a kind of bratty disposition. As well, um, many are, 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 you know, have had parents who shielded them from normal, everyday frustrations, leaving them to, uh, to, to, to not have the opportunity to learn how to problem-solve on their own. Uh, I'm thankful my dad didn't raise me that way. I learned very early on that, uh, you know, it's like you, you got to figure it out. My first street fight I got in, I got pummeled by this kid who was way older than me. And I told him, I'm going to go get my dad and my dad's going to get you. You know, my dad's a cop. He's going to get you. And I ran home all bloodied and I told my dad, hey, this kid is like, you know, five times my size, you know, you know beat me up. Come on, let's go get him, dad. And my dad literally pushed me out the door, locked the door, and said, you got to handle your own fight, son. <laughs> and that was, you know, uh, at the time I was, I was ticked off, but I now see, like, allowing me to problem solve, to fight my own fights, was, was a very good thing. Uh, that is not to say that I am exempt from the bratty gene, because I definitely have it, and you can ask those close to me. That is still a problem that I wrestle with, so I'm thankful for the teaching that we'll see in the Gospel of Mark this morning that really gets at those issues. If you were an only child, you could suffer from brattiness disproportionately. In only child homes, there's no sibling rivalry, right? There's no one to take your stuff. It's just all yours. You do your own thing. And often in only child homes, parents can, you know, uh, be tempted to not parent, so they just give you stuff to keep you occupied. Uh, when we had just one child, you realize, man, this is really hard, but one of the things uh, that, that people fail to see, we have a large family, i got seven kids, We'll be at the store somewhere and people are like, are all those yours? <laughs> it's like, no, we're, we're borrowing five of them. Uh, yes, they're all ours. That's so hard. You're like, it's actually not because they all like play with each other uh, and they all fight with each other, right? And so they're just constantly getting on each other's nerves and having a blast. It's, it's peculiar that way. But in an only child home, right, you could have a parent who's just throwing you stuff to keep you occupied. Here's the tablet, knock yourself out. And you grow up just thinking everything is yours. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal that actually blamed brattiness of our age on, get this, Mr. Rogers. Um, 
And I, I was like, I, you know, I feel an affinity with Mr. Rogers, leave him out of this. But in this particular article, they were faulting him because they saw him as one of the leading proponents of the no one is bad mentality. Now, I, I think they've read Mr. Rogers out of context, but all this psychological mumbo jumbo about, you know, everyone really being a good person and no one being bad definitely plays a hand in brattiness. Uh, brats fail to see their badness. Brats are ungrateful. Brats do not appreciate sacrifice. In pop culture, brats are often portrayed as princess-like in stereotypical roles like a cheerleader or the popular jock or whatever. But don't let the stereotypes fool you. Brattiness is more widespread. As you have on your outline under today's topic, brats are among us and in us. We tend to think that brats are found just among the privileged and the rich. We think of pro athletes who go on strike for, you know, an extra million dollars when they're already making millions too much, frankly. You think of the corporate greed that fights paying employees and outsources work to lands that don't have labor laws in order for the higher-ups to hoard more wealth. Uh, being so close to Hollywood, we may think of the writer's strike and charges of, of corporate greed. We see it in Hollywood, especially in younger stars, it seems. They don't want to wait in lines. They have things handed to them. They, they have a sort of I'm-too-good-for-you kind of an attitude, you know, must be nice. You watch an episode of TMZ or whatever, and you see just example after example of this kind of bratty uh, star behavior. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, I, I recall reading the story of Jennifer Lopez, and she once decided to move her London hotel to another hotel that was like 100 yards away. But instead of walking the distance, she and her entourage of about 30 piled into six limousines uh, to go 100 yards. Uh, that, I, you know, it's like, come on, you know. And then there's Julia Roberts, who, while making a film in New York, demanded that the TriStar studio keep a jet standing by 24 hours a day uh, on, uh, in, in the chance that if she needed to, you know, to, to, to fly somewhere on a whim, that it would be afforded to her. Um, still, hardly anyone can match John Travolta, whose demands have included that studios pay for his whopping uh, entourage, dozens of assistants, trainers, makeup artists, stand-ins, security guards, massage therapists, drivers, a personal chef, and, and, and more. Hollywood is happy to accommodate the bratty behavior because it, it, it ties in with them making money. But again, brats are not just a Hollywood phenomenon or a symptom of the rich. Uh, a person in poverty can have a privileged attitude. Uh, perhaps a, a deadbeat dad left and that single parent mom parented out of guilt, lavishing the kids with, parent, with presents. Maybe two parents were in the home, but they raised their kids without boundaries and discipline and punishment and family structures. They, they could have been impoverished and poor. So whether rich or poor, ugly or pretty, uh, you, you are going to have moments in your life where you experience the beat of the brat within your heart. It is easy to spot brattiness in others, uh, particularly in extremes like Hollywood, but we really need to humble ourselves and see that, look, this is in all of us. This leads me on the outline from the brats among us and in us to the basics of our Christian faith. Our, our Christian faith begins with a God who is creator, a God who is love, a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who is love in Himself, who creates the world and pours His love out on the creation. The creation rejects His love. It is a, a history of unrequited love. He is rejected. He's rebelled against. And, 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 and the punishment of rebelling against the giver of life means the taking back of that life. And so 
creation as a result suffers in decay and death. 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin. But God in love has chosen to save a people for himself. And you follow the storyline of the Bible and it documents in history, in real time, how God has been saving a people for himself. And ultimately, as you follow that storyline, you see that God steps into the story. The Father sends the Son. The Son becomes a man. He becomes a, a member of the rebel party and dies at the hands of the rebel party as a sacrifice for those who he saves. He doesn't leave those who he saves uh, to their own to try and find him and bubble around and, 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 and figure it out, but he actually sends the Spirit as he sent the Son, and the Spirit comes to regenerate our hearts to bring us life. The Gospel of Mark is written to historically document that reality of God the Son coming for us. A bunch of brats, derelicts, depraved, uh, despots, rebels, he comes to rescue us. And this Mark calls, and the first century followers of Jesus called, gospel. The word gospel, evangelion, means good news. The word euangelion in the Roman context was a term that was used for the Caesars who were announcing news of things happening in the empire. And so for Mark's audience to hear of the euangelion meant that there was a word from the king. And this time it wasn't a Caesar. This is the king of kings. This is the lord of lords. This is the empire of empires. And he has come for us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wastes no time. He's writing for a Roman audience. Roman audience had, had that ADHD. They, you know, they don't need a genealogy or a, a Christmas story or anything. Just give us the action. Romans are all about that action. They would love the, the Expendables movies. They love you know, John Wick. They like that just action action, action, knife fights and whatever. And so it just it starts popping off, right, with the baptism of, 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 of Jesus. A baptism was a symbol of, of faith and salvation. Jesus gets into the waters of, of, of baptism not because he needs salvation. He is salvation. He gets into the waters of baptism so that he can stand in solidarity with sinners. He takes our filthy waters upon himself. And as he is uh, uh, baptized, we see in verse 11 that the heavens open up and you hear the voice of the Father saying, My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in verse 12, we read of the Spirit. Again, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, who impels him into the wilderness. And he goes and he gets in a fist fight with the Diablo himself and knocks him out in the wilderness. And then we read in verse 14, about how the prophet, the baptizer John, is taken into custody. Jesus comes to Galilee. What does it say? Preaching the euangelion of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. To repent is to turn from sin. Jesus is calling for you know, bratty humanity to acknowledge its brattiness. To say, hey, you, you got to admit, you got a problem inside of you that you can't handle on your own. Repent and turn from it. There's a way that seems right to men. There is the way of God, and the two are not the same. You must turn from your path and, and come to me. The cool thing about God is that he doesn't wait for us to turn. He comes and rescues us because left to our own devices, we would stay on the path of destruction. So we read in verse 16, as he's going by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their, their, their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants, and they went away to follow him. This is a family business, fishing. You feed your family this way, and you feed your community this way. To walk away from your father in that culture would be a huge dishonor. To walk away from a, a good occupation would be a huge risk. What are you doing? You're walking away from it all? Yes, because when the master beckons, his servants will come. Their lives were changed by him. It was a supernatural event when he calls them to follow him. Jesus calls people out of life, and he invites them into his life. And with that invitation, he then labors, he then labors to, to teach those who he calls about this new life that he has given them. The author of this book, Mark, is a part of this eyewitness community that had experienced his calling and his changing of their lives. They, they had been trained by Jesus, and Jesus taught them, here's, here's, here's the way of life, here's salvation, and here's how you live that salvation out. You want to know how to live the good life? Let me show you. God isn't just saving people and leaving them to figure it out. He's saving them and training them in the way of life. After this opening chapter from this section uh, that we just read into chapter 3, Jesus goes public with his teaching ministry. We read him calling disciples, driving out demons, teaching doctrine, healing the sick, loving people. It's rapid-fire action. Again, the Romans got that, got that uh, the tism. They got that ADD. They want, they want to hear, boom, boom, give me the action. And so it's just rapid-fire as you read the Gospel of Mark. Then from chapter 3 into chapter 8, Mark documents three significant groups. Three groups that we see uh, highlighted in all of the Gospel accounts. They are the crowds, the haters, and the disciples. The crowds are kind of there for a show. They're like, hey, I heard about this guy from Nazareth who's doing cool, cool card tricks or whatever. You know, they're, they're there for the show. There's nothing else to do. Well, what are we going to do? We don't have technology. Our lives suck. Can you imagine not having uh, you know, cell phones and Netflix and stuff? What do you do? You just kick rocks all day? There's nothing else to do. Hey, I heard there's this crazy rabbi who's you know, doing stuff. All right, let's go see him. So there's the crowds. Then there's the haters, those who are threatened. He, Jesus threatened the hegemony. Those who are threatened by him. Man, this guy has powers we don't have. This guy has knowledge we don't have. We ask him questions, and, and he just answers it and makes us look dumb. So you got the haters, you got the crowd, and the third group that you have are the disciples. And, and as we continue into the Gospel of Mark, in section 9 through 10, Jesus, uh, chapters 9 through 10, that is, he, he pulls these disciples close to himself to silence the noise. There's just a lot of noise. You got to get away you got to turn the noise off. you got to turn the cell phone off. you got to stop checking the email. you got to turn, turn it off. Get still. Get quiet. Stop listening to all the chatter and just listen to Christ. And so this brings us to the background of Mark chapter 9 through 10 where he has pulled the disciples to himself. And he's like, i got stuff i got to teach you guys about, about this way of life. So now would you turn from the opening of Mark and find your way to the ninth chapter. We're in this section. You have the context. It's Jesus, and he's with his beloved. He's with the man who will be a part of the founding of his church. 
chapter 8-ish through in, into chapter 10, he's, he's, he, he has them and he starts talking to them about the cross. And he uses the cross, like his death execution by the state, by the government, by the man on the cross. He starts using the cross as a metaphor for the way of life that he's called them into. I don't know about you, but you know, if you were a newbie following a guru or whatever, and uh, you know, and and he's he's drawing crowds, you're like, oh, this is cool to be a part of an inner circle of a guy that has this popularity. And then he goes, hey, let's go on a little retreat. You're like, all right, you know, like I'm a part of the elite, you know, this small community that's like special to him. And he gets alone with you and starts talking about the cross. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be like, uh, I think I'm following the wrong guy here. You know, I was thinking more of like paparazzi, you know, like a record deal or something. You know, I got to get something out of this. Everyone's following you. You know, like this is really cool. And heck, for hundreds of thousands of years, our people have believed that there's like a Messiah who's going to come. Our holy book talks all about it. And you're saying like you're the guy. So I, I'm going to roll with you because you're going to hook it up, Mr. King of the Kingdom. Let's do this. And he gets you alone and starts talking about, we're all going to die. <laughs> you drink the Kool-Aid. Like, come on, man. What? I don't, I don't want to do that. Look at verse 30, Mark 9. From there on... They went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them. Hang on for a second, mid-verse 31. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he wants to get away from the paparazzi. So, you know, he, he's, he's going he's gonna to cover his face up and whatever and try to play, play off who he is and make sure that they have some private time. And he wants in that private time to teach them something. We left off mid verse 30, telling them, what was he telling them? Verse 31, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of man and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Son of man is a title that is in Hebrew prophecy. This is uh, Jesus's favorite self-designation of himself to use this title, the son of man. The Son of Man in the book of Daniel is a heavenly divine figure who comes from the heavens into the earth. And so we see uh, the fitting correlation there because he is the Son of God who has come into the earth incarnate. Uh, and, and he is the one who brings the kingdom. Uh, and so this is all fitting. And we see how the prophets are looking forward to him. We see the fulfillment in him. He says, I'm the Son of Man. But here's the twist. I'm going to get killed. What? Uh, no, like, I, no, that, like, now, this helps you to understand why, like, Judas peaced out. You know, he's like, man, I'm, I'm going to try and get some money out of this. I'm out and betrays Jesus. Understand, at, at the time, their messianic expectations were, were largely political and military. Before the time of Jesus, there was a, a, a historical moment known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman powers were on, on the backs of the Jewish people. And before them were the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They had gone through hundreds of years of having oppressors on their backs. And the Romans took their holy temple and, and the Greeks and the Romans and they desecrated it. They, they, they would smear pig's blood on their temple just to mess with them. And you know, the, and now me, I, that would get my appetite going. It's like, hmm, swine, you know, but uh, like it's un, unclean for them, you know. Uh, and so they're doing stuff to intentionally just, you know, mess with them. 
They would, they would literally have, have soldiers and, and they would get Jewish boys and, and girls and they would take out pork chops and say, take a bite or die. People died for, for, for not taking a bite of, of swine. It's so much a part of their cultural identity. It's hard for us, you know, 2,000 years later to understand. Uh, as well, being in a country that's as awesome as, as ours, uh, w- that has all kinds of freedoms that other nations do not know. But you have to understand, they have oppressors on their back who are controlling everything in their lives. Well, the Maccabean men come along and they say, enough is enough. These guys are guerrilla warfare dudes, okay? And they, they wage a war against their oppressors and they kick their heinies, okay? And Judas Maccabeus and these guys are seen, they thought this is the prophecy unfolding. These guys are Messiah. This is it. We've got our land back, you know, things are going well now, we, we put the boot on them, and then the Maccabeans die, and then Rome's uh, uh, oppressive grip is manifest again, and you're going, what is this? And Rome is, is so twisted, Rome puts uh, the, the, the Herodians in power, so Herod, who's the king at the time of Jesus, he's an Edomite, who are, who are enemies of the people of God, he is not of the line of David to be the king over the people, but they used him as a puppet to control the people. And so, so you have this messianic expectation. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to overthrow all these bad guys. And, it, and it's not without reason. You read the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible and you, you find the Messiah is, is said to do those things. And yet there's prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that the Messiah is also a suffering servant. Verse 32, they did not, look at the text, they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus is bringing a liberation that wasn't political or military. It was spiritual. It was moral. He was bringing a liberation from the penalty and the power of sin. A liberation from darkness under the kingdom of Satan, who he has already punked at this point. He's bringing a liberation from the ways of the world. He's giving us a new identity in him that marks us. He is come to pour His love upon us, and in His love, He will die in our place. But they weren't ready for all that death talk. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. He was in the house. He began to question them. What y'all talking about? Verse 34, they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> That's awkward. You know, he's like, he's God, so he knows what they're talking about. They're having an argument about who's the greatest. This total brat moment. No, I'm better than you. I'm better than you, right? Verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and he said to them, hey, you guys, if anyone, look at the text, wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Again, messianic expectations. The Messiah is going to rule. He's going to have like a cabinet. He's going to have people in power. We see this in uh, even awesome places like America. Whoever's you know gets the throne, right? He's going to appoint his boys, you know, to, to be in you know positions of power. People who might have no qualification whatsoever. You're going to be in charge of this, and we're all like, man, this is crazy. But whatever, right? Like, so who's who's going to be Jesus's right hand? Who's going to be his left hand? Who's going to get whatever? And they're, they're arguing, they're arguing about it. It's not going to be you, Peter, because remember when you did that thing? Oh, 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 not you, Peter. Oh, what about John? What about, what about, what about? I think it's going to be Judas. Oh, well, you know, don't, don't put all your eggs in that basket. 
who's going to be first? And then Jesus says, hey, you guys come here. I need to talk to you. Whoever wants to be first has to be last. This strikes at the heart of brattiness. Uh, we, we follow so that we can get something. We, we even love so that we can get something. We love so we get that feeling of love. It just feels so good to feel those little butterflies and all that energy. And some people love to be in love. We, we marry uh, often, you know, someone because we think that they're going to give us something in return. We, we have kids even because we think they're going to give us something in return. They're going to make us happy. They're going to be this or that. We, education, we, we don't go to college because we're, just, we're really interested in knowledge. We, we go to get a degree to get a job. Some of these felt needs like intimacy and education and love or whatever, those are real and they're godly, but in our fallenness, they get mixed in with carnal desires. And so, so, so you see then these carnal desires bringing havoc on people's lives. The man that you're sleeping with outside of marriage is not honoring your body. He says he loves you, but he is using you. And you believe him. You believe him while he is using you. We are surrounded by people who use people like commodities. The world lives this way and says the first will be first. He who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. You got to get all you can can all you get and sit on that can. What kind of a life is that? That is not the life that Christ has pulled these men into. You know, let's lay aside all your messianic expectations about what you think you are going to get. You are going to be last. This teaching doesn't go over well for the brat in us, but once Christ has entered our lives, once Christ's love consumes us, the, the, the brattiness and the battle with the brattiness within can be overcome in him. But that's what he's training the guys to do. So we move from the topic into the training and we're going to keep pressing into Mark and we get to listen to this private conversation Jesus is having as he disciples his men. Discipleship is kind of a brat detox. Brats are visibly overindulged, grandiose, narcissistic, egocentric. They struggle to differentiate between the self and the other. Many brats have an inability to accurately assume or understand any perspective other than their own. It's time to detox, guys. He gets, them, he gets them alone, and he wants them to detox. They're going through brat withdrawals as they detox. They, they got the shakes. You know, who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? It's, it's sort of a Shakespearean taming of the shrew that's going on. And in order to tame the shrew... He has to get at the heart because the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. Christ lays out some things that should already be true to his disciples, some basics that he has for the brattiness. And you have these on your outline. First, disciples should be like children before God. Second, they should willingly surrender everything to God. And third, they should anticipate Christ's kingdom. The, the, the discipleship detox, to be a disciple... The word disciple is a word in the Greek, mathetes. The Hebrews called it uh, talmudims. They're learners, they're apprentices. When you apprentice, you follow under someone, you listen to them and you watch them so that you can pick up on, on, on how to do the thing that they're training you to do. If you, if you want to be like a really good tennis player or whatever, you can't just watch tennis on YouTube. You've got to get someone to train you. And you listen to them, what they tell you to do, and you watch them and, and, and you mimic them. 
And, and, and that's how you grow in the playing of tennis, and so too that's how you grow in the Christian life. You need to be discipled by Christ and His church. To be discipled means that you must intentionally organize your life in such a way to become more like Christ. You must intentionally do it. It requires intentionality. You must listen to Him. You must watch Him. You must, you must follow Him. That's what a mathetes is. And He wants them to understand fundamentally His disciples should be marked by, number one, simplicity. They should be like children before God. Look at verse 36 of chapter 9. Taking a child, taking a child into his arms, he says to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Uh, Jesus pulls children to himself and uses them to teach the disciples about what they are to look like. We read in the public reading of Scripture this morning a large chunk from Mark 10, and I'll show it to you in, in a moment uh, again, where he, the, the children are coming to him, and the disciples clearly didn't understand what he's doing here in chapter 9, because in chapter 10, kids are coming to him, and the disciples are like, get these kids out of here. And Jesus rebukes them and says, let the little children come to me. The point at hand is that children are simple in their faith. They acknowledge their weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They have so much to teach adults. Children have a humble openness to the message of Jesus and the salvation He offers, unlike adults around Jesus who were hardened. Mind you, theologically, children are indeed hardened. We're born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. But the point here in the passage is the children are coming to Him and the adults are standing off and not getting it. And he goes, hey, look, look at these kids. This is what I want of you. Understand in their culture, they had a different view of children. So this, it, it, it was very socio-cultural, kind of uh, flipping it on its head. We look at kids and we go, oh, great. You know, we've, got, uh, some, we've got some kids here you know, uh, who are joining the service. Shout out to the kids here. And my little daughter Havla is here, and she's really cute, and she's taking her notes. And she's like, Dad, you're embarrassing me, right? And you have kids in the service, and we think it's cute. In their culture, they didn't view it that way. Dr. Garland, a noted scholar of this era of history, he writes, to quelch the disciples' hankering for worldly greatness, Jesus uses the child as an illustration of kingdom greatness. No romanticized notion of children existed in the first century. Children had no power, no status, no rights. They were not considered full persons and were regarded as somewhat akin to property. They were dependent, vulnerable, unlearned, and entirely subject to the authority of the Father. The rabbis classified children with the deaf, the dumb, the weak-minded, and slaves. Nowhere else in this period do we find children appearing as examples to be imitated. To become as a child basically means to recognize one's insignificance. What evokes repentance is the realization that one is as small and slight as a child before God. So keep this in mind as we keep reading. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 42. He says, for whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck to be cast into the sea. That's a pretty morbid uh, illustration, Jesus. Uh, you're drowning people, cement bricks, like mafia style. Here's a picture of, a, of millstones that we have unearthed from this area. They are massive. They are massive. They, they use them for pressing oil. 
they'll put an animal on one side and, and turn it and press oils out to create olive oil and other things. You, you think about put, putting that on a necklace and chucking someone into the ocean, that's a really graphic picture. If you mess with the kids, Jesus says, you're going to get one of those around your neck and you're going to get thrown into the sea. That's pretty graphic. Speaking of graphic, did you see last week at the Senate Judiciary Committee the, uh, the topic of sexually explicit, explicit literature targeting children came up at the Judiciary Committee? Did you see it? Uh, things turned really R-rated uh, when Senator John Kennedy read from sexually graphic children's books that are found in schools and libraries. I would quote it for you, but it's just, it's simply too explicit. You can hear it for yourself. Just go on YouTube and, you know, punch in John Kennedy Judiciary Committee. And, and, and particularly, I want you to watch the corrupt politicians as they respond. In, in, in response, one guy actually argues, well, you know, if we're going to throw out things that are sexually explicit targeting children, then we've got to get rid of To Kill a Mockingbird because it has a rape scene in it. You're like, are you out of your mind right now? Keep in mind that this issue of pornographic children's literature is going on as Illinois has a bill that will penalize schools and libraries by removing state funding if you remove these books. Um, the radicals are claiming that people with traditional ethics who don't want their kids reading sexually explicit material constitutes a book banning that is robbing people of liberty. The hearing was actually entitled, and I quote, Book Bans, Examining How Censorship Limits Liberty and Literature. I'm sorry, getting rid of sexually explicit grooming literature in kids' sections is, is not a limit of liberty. It's not, further, it's not an old-fashioned book ban, like, I don't know, racist white supremacists gutting libraries of books on racial history. These, these folks have lost their minds, not to mention their morals. The government is using schools and libraries to promote, to promote grooming and pedophilia. Um, Kennedy's move was actually genius. He, 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 by reading these books, he entered into congressional record this darkness. It's on record. It's in print now for you to read. And existentially, there was something really awkward about a very aged senior citizen reading this stuff. It was like, oh, oh, this old guy reading this, this is just... It was re really weird, and e even the people on the other side were shocked by this. But they minimized. They smoke-screened. Jesus comes, he blows away the smoke. He says, don't mess with the kids. I think of what our culture is doing to children. We kill children in the name of pro-choice. We fail to protect children after birth in the name of pride and liberty. In 2020, the New York Times had an eye-opening piece by Nicholas Kristof that was titled, The Children of Pornhub. I repeat, the title was The Children of Pornhub. The article tells of the horrors of how Pornhub exploits children for profits. The company was already under fire for f footage of sexual assaults, rape, and the piece in the New York Times then pulled it back even, even more into the darkness of this. Child pornography. Apparently, it was easy to discover. In the article, it showed that a simple search for girls under 18 or 14 YO, year old, led to a case of more than 100,000 videos. Pornhub apologized for it, and they said they removed it all. However, they blame shifted and said, well, compared to Facebook, I mean, Facebook has so many more instances. They cited that 84 million instances of self-reported uh, stuff on Facebook. Well, you know, we're not as bad as them. You see, that's 
what fallen brats do. When our sin is exposed, we minimize it by comparing ourselves to those who are worse than us. Of course, this doesn't work in the courtroom of God. You can't stand before God and say, well, I'm a good person. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. Well, yeah, good point. So, you know, no, that isn't the point. The fact of the matter is, just because you're not Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever, that doesn't make you a good person. The standard that you have to compare yourself to isn't people worse than you. It's the perfect standard of his law. And all of us have broken that. And so all of us come under penalty of it. But the world is dark and doesn't want to hear this. As advanced as we are in this culture, it is, it is highly unsafe in our culture to be children. Even after being busted, it continues. As it relates to Pornhub, just a few days ago, uh, I saw this case of an executive top employee, Mike Farley, who was busted after an investigative jur- journalist. She uh, apparently like propositioned him for a date and was cute or whatever, so he goes on a date and they're eating, and she's got the camera on. Oh, what do you do? You know, where do you work? What's it like there? Oh, is all the porn just adults? Oh, there's kids in there. Oh, you know. And so this video now has come out showing that they are still platforming and monetizing uh, the exploitation of children. Meanwhile, we had the movie Sound of Freedom come out, and it's, you know, about trafficking and kids and whatever, and Radicals were attacking the movie as like being, you know, uh, QAnon or whatever, like this is some conservative thing, like this doesn't really go on, this doesn't really go on, this isn't happening. You go, yeah, no, this, this, this is happening. And you know what? It was happening in Jesus' day. It was happening before. It's been happening since the beginning when we rebelled against God. When we took His order for what we're to believe and how we're to behave, and we said, eh, All of this unravels with it. Murder, exploitation, sexual perversion. In Jesus' day in the Roman Empire, the Romans were known for pedophilia. They were known for trafficking children for free labor. They had bathhouses with with kids and unthinkable things that I, I can't talk about any more than I can quote Kennedy this morning. But what I can quote is God's Word. And here we see Jesus. You mess with one of these little ones, You're going to the ocean. Now turn to chapter 10, verse 13. And here we come back to that passage where they're bringing children to to him. That he might touch them, it says. The disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, look at verse 14. He was indignant and said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to these. Truly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Let the kids come and be just like them. Jesus isn't asking his disciples to be childish, but to be childlike. In what way? In the way that they receive him. They're they're coming to him. They want to be in his presence. They're they're listening to him. They're, They're ready. There's no fear in them. There's total trust. They're not jaded by the world. They're trusting Jesus, and they're coming to him freely. Jesus wants his disciples to understand simplicity. Next, he wants his disciples to understand surrender. Disciples willingly surrender all things to God. As Jesus teaches on surrender, we see him hit two things, the human heart and world materials. In Mark chapter 10, where you've turned, Jesus talks about uh, divorce, 
He was being challenged by the, the, the haters in the crowd uh, about marriage and about divorce. And, and they're trying to really put him on the heels of a dilemma so that people won't like him. Because once you start talking about marriage and divorce, in any culture, you're going to step on someone's toes. They're trying to marginalize him. But Jesus says in verse 5 there that all of this is because of the hardness of your hearts. And Jesus presses in. He presses in. To, to soften the callous hearts of his disciples, to show them a new way. Draw your eyes at verse 17 of chapter 10. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Uh, the rhetoric here is, is uh, to be clear, the implication is, No one is good but God alone. Why are you calling me good then? Uh, Jesus isn't saying he's not good. Jesus is making the point rhetorically, I am God. Only God is good. Jesus doesn't say, don't call me good. He says, why are you calling? He's asking a leading question to see who this man thinks he is. Further, to expose this man's heart. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud your father or your mother. And this dude says in verse 20 in response, uh, Rabbi, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Instead of acknowledging, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, I've made mistakes, he says, no, I'm good, I'm good, I do those things, right? But this is on the surface. This is just on the surface, and Jesus sees the heart. Look at verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Oh, you, you seem to obey the laws of God, but in your heart, you're, you're actually holding back. The heart of the man, the heart of the man, Jesus is exposing his soul. You're actually holding back. And you're holding back from God in order to hold stuff from the earth. Jesus gets at the soul, and he gets at the stuff. After this guy leaves, Jesus takes the opportunity to instruct his disciples. Look at verse 23. Jesus, looking around, said to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at these words. They had a kind of prosperity gospel of their day where it was assumed that if you were rich, it was because you were favored by God. And so they're surprised by this. But Jesus again said to him, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and were even more astonished, and they said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The materials of this world keep us from the treasures of knowing Christ. Notice, no, no, notice again, they're, they're, they're shocked by this. And this is a part of... Jesus giving them a brat detox. He's got to change the way they think about the world. This blew their minds. If a rich guy can't be saved, then who can? Jesus says, hey, salvation is something God does, okay? And with God, it is possible. You guys are only disciples because I called you. In John 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father, he spoke of the disciples as those whom the Father had given him. The work of Christ is evident in their lives, but, but there's still brattiness in their behavior. There's still beliefs that need tweaking. He's, he's working on them, and he's patient with us. With God, all things are possible, meaning God alone has the power to remove the fallen human heart and to bring salvation. Now, 
saying get rid of your stuff is, isn't, uh, is, is, is just to expose the heart. Like, he knows he's not going to want to do that, and Jesus is trying to get this guy to see this. Furthermore, for his disciples to see this. Because he's trying ultimately to train the disciples to know following after me is going to cost everything. And, and they were living in a culture, as I already highlighted, where the Roman powers were horrible to the Jewish people. I'll put up here a quote from Tacitus, who writes at, at the same time as Mark. And Tacitus writes about how hard it was, the disasters, the poverty, the, the civil struggles, civil wars, foreign wars, and all the madness that was going on at the time. And for Jewish people, it was even more difficult because you got the Romans who hate you, and if you're a follower of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, as a Jewish person, you're now getting marginalized by your own people. So you've got your own people who don't like you now, and you've got the Roman government who hate your guts. It's going to be a hard life following after Jesus. You are going to suffer. Um, Mark himself, Mark himself, they, they killed Mark. They tied a rope around Mark's neck and they dragged him through the, through, through the city and they killed him in front of everyone. These teachings that are recorded from Jesus aren't theoretical. They would come to know this. So, so but why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because you're living for something that is greater and someone that is greater, which leads us to the final point here in the body of the message, the second coming. Disciples should be childlike. Disciples should have a simple childlike faith. They should surrender their souls and their stuff. Thirdly, disciples should anticipate a reward in Christ's kingdom. Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, truly, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The way it looks in the world of who's winning and who's ahead and, and, and who's saved, it's actually the other way around. It's actually the other way around. It's, it's the last who are going to be first. Jesus says... This will be made right, though, when the king comes, when the kingdom comes. I will reward my people. Don't, don't worry if you're last now because of your faith in me. Like, I'm going to take care of my own. Live in anticipation and hope. Live not for the things of this world where moth and rust destroy, but live for the kingdom that is not perishable. We conclude with transforming truths, as you have on your outline. This message has highlighted the grace of the triune God. His invitation for us to be set free from sin. He invites you and He calls you to come to Him. Confess your sin and be saved. And then He calls you into this life where He's like training you. He's weeding out bad thoughts that you've had. He's weeding out bad behaviors. He's, he's correcting your beliefs. He's, he's training you to live. And He wanted His followers to have an awareness of brattiness that happens in this fallen world. You know, who's going to be first? Who's going to get this? Who's going to get this? And then he has encounters with you know, other people and the kids and all of this. He's, he's trying to train the, the brat out of them. Don't be a perpetual adolescent suffering from arrested development. God hasn't called us to never, never land. He has called us to the promised land and his kingdom to come. When things aren't going our way, it's easy to blame someone else. This mentality is ruining, I think, our country's politics, and it's 
dilapidated many churches across this nation, the sense of self-importance is never far away. Uh, I'm, I'm a part of the Gen X posse. Uh, for us Gen Xers, we were raised by what sociologists have correctly diagnosed as the me generation. Our parents were raised in the sudden post-war affluence with parents who, our grandparents, sacrificed, uh, you know, went to war, risked their lives, uh, lived through the Great Depression and war, and didn't want their kids to have to face any of that. And so they gave them a therapeutical education, encouraged self-indulgence, and taught them that they, they were special, and that passed to the Gen Xers. For, for many in my generation and the generations following after us, this is going to be a part of our discipleship in Jesus where we intentionally organize our lives in such a way to become more like Him. He was selfless. He gave His life for His enemies. He turned the other cheek. Well, oh, I want to be like that. And so He opens our eyes to see that and says, I got you. I'll train you. The awareness then leads to apprenticeship. Jesus has called us into a life of apprenticeship. I don't know about you, but I love this. I love that our Lord is a discipler. I love that it wasn't just these 12 who he's discipling, but he's still discipling his people today. I love that by the Holy Spirit, I have direct access and union with Christ the same way that they did even more profoundly. Jesus said, it is better that I go and send another. Speaking of the Spirit... So in a sense, we actually have it better than those original disciples. And we walk in union with Him. And so this morning, you know, no, no one made it through the week unscathed. And you're not going to make it through the week ahead unscathed. Cry out to Him and say, Lord, teach me. Take my bad ideas. Take, take, take my sin. Train me. Help me. The fact of the matter is, everyone is being discipled. Uh, you're being discipled by by the news you watch, by the, the things that you're entertained with. by You're being discipled by all kinds of things, which is why we need to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ, as the Apostle Paul told us. Lastly, my final point is amore. The Latin word for love is amore. And I had to keep that alliteration going with the triple A to close it. Look at verse 21 in the text. It says that Jesus felt a love. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus made these statements out of love. He made it out of love. His teachings on marriage and divorce and heaven and hell and this and that, right? Like, he's not, he's not doing it out of any other motive than love. Our good and God's glory. He feels love as people are walking away from him and missing it. I have a sense, too, that you know, in preaching His Word, as you share His Word and call people to come to Him, in a crowd of any given size, there are going to be people who don't. And we must sense, brothers and sisters, His love for this as He continues to beckon all who are thirsty, come, drink from this well. You will never thirst again. Salvation is of love. We don't deserve it, but He gives it to us. Our Lord loves us, brothers and sisters, and He has our best interest in mind. As we respond to His Word this morning in song and coming to the communion table, the communion table is a family table. Uh, families are to be marked by love. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and has prepared a table for us through His Son. On the table, there's uh, uh, crackers and little cups with juice that remind us of the Passover that Jesus celebrated with His disciples 
where bread, unleavened bread, and wine were taken. And Jesus said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. That went right over their, their heads at the time. And after the fact, when Jesus was risen from the dead and comes to them, then things start to click. And they go, oh my goodness. Oh, oh wow. You, you died for us. You shed your blood for us. You have risen from the dead to show that that payment was, was real. And now He has ascended. And He continues to disciple and train His church that we would be disciples who make disciples and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray and let's celebrate Him at the table. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You that we can come and hear Your Word. I thank You that You move through Your Word. Even preaching the Word this morning, Lord, I, I, I feel You doing stuff in, in my heart. Your Word is effective and powerful. I pray, Lord, that You would take the Word this morning and use it to challenge us. Use it to confront us. Use it to comfort us. Lord, as we come to the communion table and we have symbols of what You, Jesus, have done for us, Lord, I, I pray that You would move, that You would draw us, cleanse us, forgive us, bring us deeper in repentance and faith. We need You, Lord. We need Your work in our hearts. And so we come in prayer asking for You to pull back our hearts Reveal the stuff that is holding us down. Reveal the, 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 the things in our soul that leads us into a kind of bratty, entitled way of living. Create a clean heart in us, O oh God, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.